I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on May 10th of 2015, under the headline, Storm-Tossed Ships Shared a Double Date with Destiny. Here we go. December of 1852 was a rough month on the Oregon coast in more ways than one. It was one of those years when storm systems chase each other across the sky one right after another for weeks on end, lashing the surf into towering foamy lather and filling the Columbia River bar with 40-foot-tall walls of green water. Outside the bar's entrance, being tossed about mercilessly by the serial storms, a small cluster of sailing ships tacked back and forth or rode at anchor. They'd come from San Francisco, working the new and profitable run back and forth to Portland to fetch supplies for the hordes of eager miners still working the gold rush diggings. Of all the waiting vessels, the bark Mindora had been there the longest. Four solid weeks. Its crew had spent Christmas being tossed around on the sea, wet and cold, thinking longingly of the warmth and seasonal cheer being enjoyed a few miles away in Astoria. By January 12, 1853, the cupboards in the ship's galley were almost bare, and the captain was rationing the hardtack and beans. Water, too, was running short, as were tempers among the crew members. The Mindora skipper, George Staples, was getting desperate. But the day had dawned, and it was finally calm. The worst weather of the year had, it seemed, blown itself out. Captain Staples lost no time in giving the order to trim up the sails for the crossing and then fall off the wind and head inland. At least one other ship waiting there on the seaward side of the bar soon followed suit. That would be the bark I. Merithew, also out of San Francisco. In fact, the Mindora and the I. Merithew had been docked side by side in San Francisco the month before, being loaded for their respective journeys to Portland. The Merithew had left a few days after the Mindora, so it had not been stuck waiting quite as long. But its crew's Christmas experience had been similar, and its stocks of foodstuffs were also running out. Unfortunately, those would not be the only things the crews of these two ships would share. The Mindora and the Merithew had a double date with destiny. They would follow almost the exact same path on the exact same day with the same results and lay their bones within a few miles of one another on the same shores of what's now Washington State. The trouble started with the Mindora, which was beating across the usual southwest wind, making about four knots when she suddenly slipped into one of the elusive, unpredictable wind shadows with which the bar was plagued. Instantly adrift, with drooping canvas and at the mercy of the river's current, the ship started drifting to port with alarming rapidity, making for the middle sands. Desperately, the crew dropped anchor, but the current was so fast and the bottom so sandy that the Mindora was merely slowed down by this. Slowly, inexorably, dragging her anchor behind her, she drifted toward the middle sands and slammed onto the shoals. Like a swordsman delivering the coup de grace, the ocean now struck with full force. 
A series of giant foam-topped breakers thundered down on the Mendora's deck, sweeping them clear of everything movable, smashing deckhouses, flooding the forecastle. With remarkable discipline, the crew members stuck to their stations until Captain Staples gave the order to abandon ship. Chances are he was waiting for the tide to turn so that the seas would be more manageable. When the time was right, they quickly got the lifeboat ready. Somehow it had been spared the ravages of the boarding seas and launched it. The boat was badly overloaded, the weather was freshening, and the bar was still rough. Wave after wave sloshed over the gunnels of the little open boat. Eager hands bailed it out, barely keeping up as the darkness closed in on them. At the oars, sailors took turns pulling dotily, driving the little boat upriver all the way to Astoria. Hours later, backs aching and muscles taxed to the limit, they finally arrived. Soon they were stretched out on the floor of the town hall around a glowing wood stove, drinking in the warmth and sleeping like men in a coma. They couldn't know it yet, but they weren't alone. Even as they rowed desperately toward Astoria, the crew of the Merithew was scrambling for its own lifeboats. The Merithew hadn't even made it as far as the Mindora when it had run aground, on Clatsop's spit. The next day, Captain Staples got the bar pilot to bring them out to survey the wreckage and perhaps consider any salvage possibilities. To their astonishment, the mariners found only an empty stretch of sand where the wreck had stood. Over the evening, the tide had come in and worked the vessel free and abandoned and unmanned and derelict it had floated with the river's current out into the ocean again. Nor was there any remaining sign of the Marathew. It, too, had relaunched itself, abandoning all hands on the beach. A few days later, the wreckage of the Marathu was found. It had drifted back into shore and been dashed against the rocks near North Head, on the Washington side of the river's mouth. The Mindora drifted farther. A day or two later, it arrived through the surf just a few miles to the north near Shoalwater Bay and stranded itself on the beach there. No one was killed in either shipwreck. Both were total losses. It was an odd coincidence, this double date with destiny which these two ships had embarked on when they sailed through the Golden Gate a month before, but its conclusion certainly could have been a whole lot worse. Key sources in this story have included works by James Gibbs Jr. and Don Marshall. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. 
Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.